PM board bombs. Now, here's doctors Iltafat Hussein and Blake Briggs. Welcome back to another EM Board Bombs episode, the show that makes board studying so much more enjoyable, so much more memorable. My name is Blake Briggs, and I'm not going to be joined by Dr. Hussein again today. You know, we thought he was going to be back. We did. I even said it last week. I don't like to lie to people, but he actually was just invited last minute to speak at the 20th annual seminar on constipative disease conference. He's actually planning to be the keynote speaker, and he's going to give some variation of something about water. You know, you remember a couple weeks ago, they listened to our podcast, and they were just really impressed with his passion for H2O. So he said we'll be back next week. I'm going to take his word for it this time, but I don't know. We can't hold our breath, but we, we promise we haven't let him go. He's still around, but uh, you get the complete package maybe next week. We'll see. You're stuck with me. So remember, for each 15-minute episode, you gain high-yield board knowledge. As we like to say, come for the stems, but stay for the content. You can sign up on our website for so many awesome things, free updates when new episodes come out, like new handouts, like our study guides, which are just such a big hit, and podcast episodes, as well as free review quizzes. We tell you when we put new quizzes up, you can test your knowledge on these topics. You can go to our website at emboardbombs.com. Again, we have an airway module that is really just kicking butt and taking names. It's awesome. Over a thousand people have viewed it now. Again, go to emboardbombs.com for that airway module. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at emboardbombs. Let's dive right into this topic. So you're caring for a 24-year-old male who comes to the ED after cutting his foot. He states he was at a family reunion in West Virginia when he entered the annual can crushing contest. (laughs) He describes the event as a race to stomp out a line of empty Mountain Dew cans while barefoot. He reports he is the reigning champion. However, this year his cousin took the lead only because he stopped after cutting his right heel on the third can. He states luckily this can had some residual dewski on it that he poured over his wound to help cleanse and stop the bleeding. Great idea. So he arrives to the ER hemostatic, and the wound is about 3 centimeters in length. Dirt and mud are present in the wound, and he states his last tetanus vaccination was 7 years ago, and he also says he was vaccinated as a child. So which of the following is the best next step for this patient? Choice A, administer Tdap. Choice B, administer tetanus aminoglobulin. Choice C, no tetanus vaccination is indicated. Choice D, administer cefazolin. Correct answer is going to be choice A, administer Tdap. Not too hard of a question here. Had a pause to think about it though, right? We want to give credit for this question stem to actually Dr. Jenna Kirby. Dr. Jenna Kirby is a third-year resident at Wake Forest Emergency Medicine Program. She's actually one of our chief residents this year as well. Dr. Kirby is a fantastic physician. She's hilarious as well, so we really appreciate her adding some humor and adding some awesome stems to this great podcast. So this week is basically a continuation of last week. You know, last week we talked about puncture wounds, you know, retained foreign bodies, antibiotics, complications of puncture wounds in general, plantar wounds, and even marine puncture wounds. Talked about Vibrio a little bit as well. But in general, this week we're going to be covering just tetanus. So a little bit shorter. The first thing is we're going to cover just the background of tetanus, and uh, only because 
and one, you just kind of have to know it. You know, this is, again, very fundamental, but, you know, we'll go our whole careers probably never see tetanus if you're in a resource-rich country like the United States. The other reason is, is that this stuff is just super interesting. And of course, we don't like to dig into the weeds. That's why you love us. This is why this podcast is popular. It's less than 15-minute episodes of telling you what you need to know. Well, I'm going to make an exception. Consider this just a bonus episode. I'm just telling you a few extra things that I think are just truly fascinating about tetanus and something that you can keep at the back of your head when you're thinking in the ED about this bug. So tetanus is caused by Clostridium tetani. And if you know anything from microbiology, you just have to give credit for how nasty this little family is, the Clostridium family. This is like something out of like the Legion of Doom or the League of Villains. If you had to like make some type of comic themed or movie themed, you know, like League of Bad Guys, this family has it all. Look at the members of this family. So you have Clostridium tetani, we just talked about that's tetanus, right? And then you have Clostridium botulinum, which causes botulism. You have Clostridium perfringens, the gas gangrene bug. Remember that one? Which just sounds like such a Pokemon move if there ever was one. Clostridium tried gas gangrene. It was very effective. And then you have Clostridium difficile, which is nasty, gross, and insanely hard to treat <laughs> with antibiotics. It's highly resistant. So what a weird group, nasty little family of bacteria. Um, every one of them, highly wanted, kill on sight, very dangerous. So tetanus and resource-rich countries. Universal vaccination since 1940, it's severely dramatically dropped the incidence of tetanus. It's wonderful. From 2009 to 2017, there were only 264 cases, which actually is higher than I thought, 264 cases of tetanus in the United States. The stats from that from the CDC, because it's obviously reportable here, we have a database, 20% of patients were greater than 65 years old, which makes sense. Some of this is due to the fact that their vaccinations wear off or they're not having good follow-up for medical care. And then 10% of those cases were less than 20. So maybe they didn't finish their vaccination series, etc. The overall case fatality of all those 264 cases was 7%. All those deaths were greater than 55 years old. No, Nobody younger than 55 died of tetanus. So one more purely interesting Stat here is from resource-limited countries. Unfortunately, case fatality rates have not declined or changed in decades. So remember, 7% case fatality rate in the United States. And it's hard to track these, you know, because there's no real databases to follow. In 2016 alone, there was 50 to 80,000 approximate deaths from tetanus. What? <laughs> That's insane. Uh, so keep in mind that this is a still a big disease elsewhere. In general, the incubation is long. It can range from like 3 to 21 days. That's important to know, and that's why often people forget about vaccinations of tetanus in the ER, right? When people come in with wounds and injuries because, hey, it's out of sight, out of mind, right? It's not really an issue until 3 to 21 days later. In general, the presentation of general tetanus infection would be, you know, 80% of these patients have locked jaw initially, that trismus of their jaw. They can have tachycardia, diaphoresis. They can later have cardiac arrhythmias. The classic physical exam findings are going to be tonic contractions of, you know, skeletal muscle and muscle spasms that are extremely painful. And these spasms are triggered by almost anything, any type of stimuli, noises, light, touch. Uh, these patients can have stiff neck. They can have the classic sketchy little Cheshire cat smile, the rhesus sardonicus. They have rigid abdomen. And then the $10 word of the day. Hello, this is the letter O. Just like Sesame Street here, we'll do a letter word of the day. The letter of the day is O. O for epistotonus, 
or if you're from across the pond, aka the UK, you're going to pronounce this word apistotinus, which is this crazy Greek word for behind tension. <laughs> Just nuts. It's a state of severe hyperextension and spasticity, and it involves individuals like head, neck, spinal column, and they enter into this like complete bridging or arching position of their back. There's famous pictures of this all over the internet. I'm sure professors in medicine have used this in all their slideshows to talk about tetanus and microbiology. It's like there's one classic one of that guy with his shirt off, like arching his back. Um, it's heavily romanticized, one of those classic medical conditions, um, which thankfully is just not really around anymore in resource-rich countries. And thankfully, this is the case because what a horrible way to die. Very painful muscle spasms, and late on in the disease course, the patients will start having apneic periods from their upper airway obstruction and contraction of their thoracic muscles of their chest. And the duration of this whole painful disease, awful disease, is like four to six weeks. And apparently, this is because your nerves literally have to regrow. <laughs> Something insane. Uh, it's because the nerves apparently have to literally grow new nerve axons. <laughs> I'm only laughing just how horrible it is. So that's Clostridium tetani. <laughs> so obviously you want to keep a healthy differential diagnosis, right? So the differential diagnosis here is going to be obviously drug-induced dystonias, which are much more common than tetanus, as you can imagine. And you got to think about acute dystonic reactions, right, from anti-dopaminergic agents. So Haldol, Triperidol, all those fun ones. Metoclopramide, if you're treating a headache, or Compazine, as we know. We can think about local trismus from dental infections, but they wouldn't have all the crazy systemic symptoms like tetanus gives. Another classic mimicker, we did a podcast on this uh, several weeks ago, is NMS, Neuroleptic Malignant Syndrome, which would be a classic also related to antipsychotics. Just as a brief review, those patients would present febrile. They usually have that quote-unquote lead pipe rigidity. And they're going to have altered mental status as well. And of course, it's in the setting of recent antipsychotic usage. Finally, on our list of rare but really prevalent board presentations would be strychnine toxicity. Strychnine historically is obviously used as a rat or bird poison, and um, it can be mixed with street drugs uncommonly, like LSD, heroin, and cocaine. Historically, it's always been in Agatha Christie or Arthur Conan Doyle, you know, Sherlock Holmesy novels of a very painful, very well, it's perfect for detective novels <laughs> type of intentional poison for either murder or suicide. That's going to present almost exactly like tetanus, uh, rhesus sardonicus, uh, arching of the back, etc. So let's get into the particulars about the vaccination course and why some of these answers are incorrect. Quick review here, remember in children, the pediatric schedule for tetanus vaccines is that they receive one dose at two months, then at four months, then at six months, and then another dose at some point between 15 and 18 months of age. Now, this whole time, these children are getting the DTaP, the diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis vaccine. At 11, 12 years old, at some point during those two ages, they receive one booster dose of the Tdap, the tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis. What's really the difference? Well, in general, whatever the first letter of that vaccine is, it has higher doses of that agent. So the DTaP has higher doses of diphtheria, and the Tdap has higher doses of tetanus. Every 10 years after, from then on in adult life, you're getting either the TD vaccine or the Tdap vaccine. 
we're switching more right now to the Tdap vaccine due to there are some reoccurring cases, especially in older adults, of whooping cough. And so they thought, why not just revaccinate and get extra doses of the diphtheria pertussis? So that's where the trend's going, but you don't need to worry about that. It depends what your hospital has. If you're just worrying about tetanus, TD, or the Tdap is more than fine. So in general, when we're talking about tetanus vaccination, we need to worry about two things. We need to worry, is the wound clean or contaminated? And then we need to worry about, did they have previous doses of the toxoid vaccine? And by previous doses, we mean more than three. Pretty much we've decided that if you have greater than three doses, previous doses of the toxoid vaccine, you're considered immune, capably immune against tetanus. So we got a clean wound, and the patient has had greater than three previous doses of the toxoid vaccine. The only time you'll give a redosing of the tetanus vaccine to this patient in the ER is if it's been greater than 10 years since their last vaccine. All right? If you have a patient with a clean wound and they had less than three prior doses of the tetanus vaccine, you're going to give them the tetanus vaccine regardless, right? You're just going to give it to them. It doesn't really matter when their last vaccine was. They had less than three. They're not capably immune yet. Give them the tetanus vaccine. Okay, for contaminated wounds, this is even simpler. If you have a contaminated wound and you have less than three prior doses of the tetanus vaccine, uh, duh, you're going to get the tetanus vaccine. It's really a no-brainer. Here's where it changes, though. So if you have a contaminated wound and it's greater than five years since your last tetanus vaccine, but you're up, you've had three prior doses in the past, you still get it. So let's say you're capably immune, you had all your uh, prior doses, meaning greater than three, and it's less than five years since your last vaccine, you're okay, you don't need it again. Now, immunoglobulin, let's finish up with that. So when we're talking about the tetanus human immunoglobulin. This is going to be given to people that only have one condition, a contaminated wound, and they are not fully immune against tetanus. It means they've had less than three prior doses. So you're going to give them the vaccine and the immunoglobulin. Makes sense, right? And by contaminated wound, we've said everything before about this definition, right? Dirt, feces, soil, saliva, frostbite, burns, depending on the burn, done. That's really about it. All right. I'm going to have a table posted with this podcast on our website for the tetanus vaccine schedule. You can also just check out one of our handouts on our website, which is on the suture guide. Just scroll down to our page and you can use the search bar in our handout section and search for the suture and wound care guide. That'll also have the tetanus guide posted there in a nice table format. If you know you need to look at it one more time, have a visual instead of me just rambling off tetanus facts. All right, with our time remaining, let's go over the reason why some of these answers are incorrect. So remember that this patient has a contaminated wound. There's dirt, there's mud present, it's three centimeters in length. His last tetanus vaccine was seven years ago. So according to the table, this is a contaminated wound. You need to have tetanus vaccine given if his last vaccination was greater than five years. So that's what we're going to do. He was vaccinated as a child. We assume he had his full vaccine series in this question. So he does not need tetanus immunoglobulin in this case. Choice C is wrong, obviously, because he needs tetanus vaccination. And choice D is wrong because this isn't an infected wound. He's presenting less than a few hours after the incident. There's no way it's infected already. There's no suggestion in this question stem of an open fracture or a deep wound. And so on the boards, antibiotics are not indicated. I know in real life that there are a lot of physicians and some institutions who just go ahead and just give prophylactic antibiotics. That's a whole debate for another day. Uh, There's no studies really to support that at all, prophylactic antibiotics, if it's not an open fracture. That's not going to be tested on the boards. The only time you give IV antibiotics for prophylaxis is an open fracture. So just keep that in mind. That's why Choice D was wrong on this question. So 
I believe the summary is pretty straightforward. We don't have to go over the whole table again. Just check it out when we post it online. Just remember your differential diagnosis for tetanic contractions of skeletal muscle and spasms. Remember NMS, drug-induced dystonias, strychnine poisoning, dental infections, if it's in uh, jaw trismus, that sort of thing. So keep in mind a differential that's going to be a lot more common than actually tetanus. But remember, tetanus is a huge problem worldwide still. So if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to us for any topic suggestions or if you have any comments or feedback really just please drop us apple reviews really help boost our rankings in apple Podcasts. it would be really awesome if you can help with that remember that you can find us on twitter our handle is at em board bombs and that is another board bomb delivered hopefully iltava does join us next week because i'm getting tired to do this in love all right see you next time